Good evening and welcome back to Transatlantic History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. This is Brian in Buffalo, New York, U.S. of A. And with me, as always, is Lauren from Swansea. How are you, Brian? I'm I'm okay. You know, it's been an adventurous few days. It was uh, snowing and then it was uh, 150 degrees out and now it's kind of in the middle. So our temperature's everywhere, Lauren. It's global warming for you. Speaking of global warming, how's Swansea? I think that's the center of global warming. Um, we're okay. Um, uh, it it was it was an odd day yesterday. I mean, it poured with rain, and then I came home from work because I was in Cardiff yesterday, and it was sunny. It was a very weird, weird day. Yeah, it's always raining in Swansea. I wasn't in Swansea yesterday, Brian. I was in Cardiff. But you came home. In, and it was sunny. Exactly. When you got home to Swansea, it was sunny. And that's bizarre. Well, it better be sunny next um, next Thursday. Oh. Well, yes, because I have got tickets to the book launch of Volcana. <gasps> Oh, I am so jealous because I can't get on an airplane and go to that book signing. But, oh, please tell her I said hello and and everybody go back, listen to that episode. It was fantastic. All about the legendary Volcana. I'm very much looking forward to that and seeing Rebecca in person. Are you going to scream like a little girl at a Beatles concert? No. Yes, you are. No. Are you going to heckle and say, what kind of Welsh you don't speak Welsh? If I can stand in front of Captain Catherine Janeway and not squeal like a little girl, I think I'm okay. That's true. I heard you did scream like a little girl, though. When? Captain Janeway. No, I no, no, you you don't know anybody there that was with me. No, I just made that up. I'm full of shit. That was over 20 years ago now, Brian. That's scary. (laughs) Yeah, I made it up. Not going to lie. Made it up. Full of shit. And if you're full of shit and have a problem, you can always get the bathroom buddy. Why did you have to go there? Because I love the bathroom buddy. So can you tell me, have we had any, have we, well, have you had any hate mail this week? I have got no hate mail this week. Of course, I haven't looked at the email box in several days because I didn't want to. Did I get hate mail? Because I never get hate mail. No, you never get hate mail. Occasionally someone will say, you know, Lauren, she's got to stick up her pooper because she's not laughing at those hilarious jokes. I don't think those emails exist. <laughs> Speaking of hilarious jokes, <laughs> I got some jokes if you'd like. Uh, you're ill, so I will allow. All right. Did uh, Did you hear about the chameleon who couldn't change colors? No. He had a reptile dysfunction. <laughs> do you want to Do you want to know something funny? It's It's It's. Want to acknowledge that one, do you? No. It's because I'm looking at it. Um, you know, back in January, I was very lucky to receive um, a proof of Alison Weir's upcoming book. I do indeed. Well, I came home to a 
package on my doorstep which is never a good move because I I you know my doorstep is out on the pavement which is out on the road so it's it's a bit risky to a um book and it says Lauren David Lauren Davis transatlantic history rambling so I'm like okay um this is weird and then I open it and it is the completed one it is the the one that will be going on sale oh that's wonderful they gifted me another one. Oh, was it signed no 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 this is from her this is from her publishers this comes directly from her publishers um because the, the the a proof was and was like an exclusive design just for the proof and then but this one is is as it will be on the bookshelf can i tell you a little secret what i've been talking to allison oh, is that why i've had it no um i've just been talking to her about coming back on the show and she'll be coming back on very soon to promote the new book the legendary allison weir will be back so i um so yeah because normally if you get sent a proof you get sent a proof to review the book and that's you don't get sent because by the time you get sent to proof, it's usually generally apart from a few typos here and there, and there's always typos. Um, it's it's pretty much presumed it is the final book, and you read it, you give your review, or you talk to the author, and that's it. You never get sent a second copy that is the ready for sale one. So I don't know if it was a mistake, but I think it was a gift. So I have in my hands the book as it will go to print before the 11th of may and i'm looking forward to reading it and um to see how it how it differs i want to know what her blood type has to do with it what well you said there were typos (laughs) get it type o blood all right well how about this joke for you lauren this one you'll get what did the apple say to the kangaroo i don't know brian Nothing. Apples can't talk. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I got to ask you something, Lauren. Yes. If I keep telling all these dad jokes and I don't have any kids, does that make me a faux pas? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. All right. I, I won't tell any. Well, not yet. Anyway. But uh, big news, big, big news going on. Neil Story returns to the show tonight. The one and only, the man, the myth, the mustache, Neil Story will be back on tonight. How does that make you feel, Lauren? Probably all warm and fuzzy. Um, it fills me with fear because I never know what he's going to say. Well, you never know what I'm going to say, Lauren, and you don't seem frightened. No, I'm not frightened of you, but, like, legit, I am a bit scared, because you never know what he's going to come out with, and it's like, yeah. Would would it would it make you feel better if I told you another joke? I don't know about that. Oh. All right, one more, okay? Okay. What do you call bees? That make milk instead of honey. I know this one. 
boobies. <laughs> yeah, I know that one. <laughs> Oh, I love the jokes, and people love the jokes, and a couple of those were sent in to us by listeners, and we want to thank you so much because I love reading these jokes, and they make me laugh when I get them. I just, we get a, we get a couple dirty ones sent in. I don't like to tell those on the show because, you know, I ain't no fucking dirty joke teller. Um, maybe we should, maybe if we have, pay, maybe if we were to ever get a Patreon, and I'm not quite sure how those things work, to be quite honest. Um, we, we you could do that as a bonus thing. Brian will dirty tell you jokes. dirty jokes. Yeah, Brian will. Yeah, Brian will tell you dirty jokes. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm excited about Neil coming back on. I'm excited about Allison coming back on. Got a couple other great shows coming up in the near future, and and we got an entire archive of great shows because Lauren, do you know this is our hundred and forty fifth full episode? Wow, that is amazing. Does that include the special ones we did or just? No, that's that, that's just the full episodes. The specials and the bonus content we've done are completely separate. But of full episodes with a guest, 145 episodes. Mm. And I think all of them are available in our archives or whatever you find uh, your podcast, whatever podcast platform you use. I believe every episode except the first one may not be available because there was something wrong with that recording and somehow it got deleted and I haven't been able to find it in my archives anywhere. But as of this, there'll be 144 plus bonus episodes plus special episodes available in our back catalog. Are you sure the, the, the first one got deleted? I thought it did. I know it did on um, Anchor FM. I don't know if it's still available on Spotify or Radio could be, Public. Could it be that, like, because we have been doing this now, scarily, for over three years, could it be more to do with the fact that it's a recording that's over three years old? No, I think it was, there was something t- wrong with the technical upload of it. Ah, something weird. Sort of like when oh. we first started, we were going to be on YouTube as well. But there was no, something even, wrong. No, I, I don't remember that. I don't remember yeah, that discussing. Well, it was three years ago. You might have forgotten. But we were trying to. We were originally going to upload these to YouTube as well as audio only podcasts available on YouTube. Oh, well, you're right. Even on Spotify, the first one's gone. According to it, um, it it's bonus content one that we start with. Mm. Even the trailer's gone because we did do a trailer. We did a trailer. I know the trailer's gone. The first episode disappeared. But like I said, that's when we first got the technology and the uh, we're we're uploading and recording. And and we're we're using totally different systems now, different microphones, different software, different laptops. Goodness. Goodness. I'm just looking back at um, the episode (laughs) from three years ago. And some of them were coming out like, there was one on the 20th of March, and then we released another one on the 21st of March, and then the 25th of March. There were two on the 25th of March, and then yeah, the 27th of 
March, the 28th of March, the 1st of April, the 5th of April, the 10th of April, 15th of April, the 18th of April. We were really struggling with lockdown, weren't we? <laughs> yeah, but what's amazing is, look, we got guests for each one of those shows. We were doing, remember there was a time we were doing multi-interviews a day with people. Yes. And we were all okay. going so crazy in the lockdown. I was just editing and doing stuff like nuts. And we used to do the chat and then the interview at the same time. We didn't even separate the record. Oh, everything has changed. I think um, the I remember with the I, I remember um, the first I think the first time we had Neil on, we um, we had Neil on the show. And then a few hours later, we went straight into Aaron Ra. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, wow. Now, I think the show's gotten better. Yeah, it's just it's just it's just crazy to think that, you know, now we have one every week and that seems like a lot. That's because life has gone back to normal. But to look back at it and see when for, you know, like the 8th of March, you know, we've been doing them like multiple episodes coming out a day, like one day between them. I mean, these these were full, full, um, these were full episodes. I mean, like, they were over an hour long. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So crazy. Yeah, we were busy it. little bees. Not boobies, but we were busy bees. Yeah. I think you could also we, see where lockdown started happening again, which was, like, in the autumn of 20. So, because you've got, yeah, even, even in August, we were doing, like, the 2nd of September, the 4th of September, the 9th of September. Gosh. Yeah, and then I think we made the decision that uh, let's just do it once a week because, you know, I think we were flooding it and people that were listening couldn't keep up with it because we were releasing so many. So we decided to put it on a, you know, regular. Okay, the real thing is I got lazy and didn't feel like editing like 12 hours a day. (laughs) No, well, and another thing as well is that now that everything has gone back to normal, um, you know, the guests that we were able to get, we can't get anymore. Because they're busy. Yeah, a lot of people are busy. I mean, I don't think we'd be able to get Lawrence Krauss. No, he's touring and lecturing again, so he'd probably be a tough one to get. Or Chris yeah. Impey. You know, the universities are back open. They're all working again. So, and I look back at that, and I'm like, that is crazy. Yeah. How did we even? That was so audacious. That was a big yeah. audacious thing to do. Yeah, I was pretty badass. I was pretty proud of myself. <laughs> I remember calling you, well, on the, on the, on the texting, because calling would still be expensive. But uh, I texted you, I said, hey, I got Lawrence Krauss to come on the show. And you're like, how the hell did you get Lawrence Krauss to agree? And I said, I asked him. That was it. <laughs> it was a lockdown. No one was doing anything. I asked him, he yeah. said yes. I mean, we were so blessed with, you know, it was a horrible time, but... I mean, it it gave us because we talked about it for a while doing a podcast. You're like, oh no, I've got to, I've got to um, research it. And I've got to, you know, look into it. And then it was locked down, you know, and you would just went, let's do it. Yep, we're doing it, and it was as professional sounding as you could imagine those first few episodes, <laughs> as compared to now where we're so professional. Right. Speaking of professional. I do want to hook back up with uh, one of our podcast sisters and do another episode with the old timey crimey gals because 
haven't talked to them in a while. And those are fun. And people no, love our true crime episodes as much as they love our paranormal episodes. I haven't spoken to them in a while either. But I will reach out to them. But tonight, we're back to the paranormal because everyone loves the paranormal episodes and everyone especially loves the Neil Story episodes. I know you might be a little frightened, Lauren, but I am excited. So, I'm oh, so no, excited. It, it, it's it's like I, I it's 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 because I don't know what's going to come out of his mouth because no I have sat there and watched him do a raffle and had to explain to some very confused Canadian people that he was not making fun of um, people with Parkinson's disease he was referring um, in the UK we have we used to have um, insurance life insurance have, um, life insurance adverts that were narrated by Michael Parkinson. I don't know if you know who Michael Parkinson is. I do. Um, and he's a very famous interviewer. And Yeah, very, very, very big talk show host, yeah. Before they, before they used to give away gift cards, they used to give away a pen. And everybody used to say it was a parky pen because it was Parkinson that was doing the narrating and blah, 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 blah. So he, so he said that one of the raffle prizes was a parky pen, a Parkinson pen. And they thought he was making fun of people with people with Parkinson's disease. And I was like, this is going really wrong. And he needs to be stopped. Or he needs his medication. Or he needs to stop being given the blue smarties. I don't know what's going on. And if anyone's gonna stop Neil, it would be the Canadians. <laughs> well, I, I I was very concerned once because this lady did get very put out by his sense of humour and there was a scene happening right by me and I was just wishing that the ground would swallow me up. <laughs> did you know, Lauren, before I go on to the, the next thing I got to go on to, and this is not a joke, this is serious, our third highest listener base is in Canada. They're very lovely people. They 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 create. They gave us Tim Hortons. They did indeed. Even and though he did he did play for the Buffalo Sabers for a while, you know. But but it's the best coffee in the world, so you know. They gave us a lot, Canada, and uh, I love Canada. You know, I, I told you I only live fifteen minutes from Canada. They gave us poutine as well, which is like the best food ever. If I'm in my office at work. I actually can see Canada from my office window. That's how close I live to Canada, Lauren. But they're still like, we don't want Americans in Canada. They like me. I don't know why, but they do. You can't drive over without a passport, though. They, they aren't like, oh, it's Brian. It's fine. He can come in without his passport. Well, you, a passport or an enhanced license. Um, in the U.S., we have what's called an enhanced license, so we can travel between the U.S. and Canada at that border without a passport but with a special document separate from a passport. But that's irrelevant and really boring to the audience, I'm sure. But Canada is our our, uh, our third largest fan base. I don't know if they're fans. I mean, they listen to us. They could hate us. They could be listening to, like, you know, just grit their teeth and say, I hate that motherfucker. But the third uh, country with the third highest um, viewership is Canada. And what about um, the first? USA. Oh. And the yeah, USA, the UK, Canada, and Australia are our four biggest. So basically, all our friends are just listening. 
<laughs> well, I like to think of it as the four English-speaking nations, maybe. The four most populous English-speaking nations, Lauren. Let's look at it that way. No, it's just all our friends. It's just a big group of our friends saying, well, we listen. Our, our fifth highest is Germany and then Mexico. Oh, that's pretty cool. So... Yeah, and I, I think uh, yeah, I think a lot of that is because um, a lot of Germans also do speak English, and as do a lot of Mexicans. I think it has more to do with that we're an English-speaking podcast, and our friends are in those countries. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I could just imagine Monique driving over to the border of Mexico, going, "I'll give you a view, I'll give you a listenership in another country, Laura, and I'm coming, I've got you back." <laughs> That's the way it works, Lore. <laughs> it might do. Well, either way, I'm going to go on to Today in History. How'd that sound, Lauren? That sounded good. Well, my day in history is actually quite a sad day. I know we laugh a lot during the ramblings and we talk about things that are funny sometimes. Sometimes we talk about tragic things, but my day in history... April 25th, 1952, the American Bowling Congress approves the use of automatic pin setters. Putting that poor octopus from the Flintstones that set the pins out of business forever. I don't think he went out of business. I think he went, I of business. And then What's he going to do when the automatic pin setters come in? That octopus guy had nothing to do. The elephant was the vacuum cleaner and the shower. The octopus got dick to do now maybe he was really rich and could retire no. oh you think octopi that were pin setters made that much money if he you think he'd be still setting pins at the bedrock bolorama if he was making that much coin? Like he, would just, he would just go to rock vegas and do a magic show and everything would be okay Ooh, that's a good that's a good point but uh, either way in 1952 um yeah, automatic pins, which is weird to think that until then, there actually were people that oh, sat behind there and would set the pins up. People are hurling these heavy balls at them, and they're there where the balls are going to, you know, must have been a lot of injuries. I would not have wanted that job. Yeah, but a lot of great stories as well. I mean, if you work in customer services, you always come away with, like, the best stories. Well, I've worked customer service before, and I've never had the story that, yeah, and then all these people were hurling 18-pound balls at me for the last eight hours. I mean, I've had somebody, like, when I worked in the cinema, I've had somebody come up to, come up, it was, it was late at night, um, and they were coming up the escalator with their trousers around their ankles. So so they were thrusting balls at you, is what you're saying? (laughs) Pretty much. Were, were there undergarments involved? There were undergarments involved, but it was really, really disconcerted. I, I don't know why. I don't know um, how. And I don't think I could ever repeat it now because I've got a lovely little office office job and I think I've gone a bit soft. But I just kept shouting at him, pull your trousers up. If you had a nickel for every time you had to yell, pull your trousers up. I'd have many nickels. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, but I, because uh, even now, it's like people ask me, like when I'm talking to people, I'll always, I'll always 
do you know like like reassuring them or something like that and they said well why why are you so careful to do that and I'm just like you've never had an angry parent shout at you for not letting their underage child in to see a violent film or people dropping trial on the escalator I mean, no, no, no. People... He came in. He came into the cinema. We looked at the CCTV, and his trousers were around the around his ankles. It took us about forty five minutes to get him out of the cinema. Um, we did that. Um, I, I, um, what kind we did of movies that were you showing there, Lauren? No, he was just drunk. Um, and it, we had really bad storms. So when I tried to ring the police, they were like, "Oh, we're not coming." going to take a while to come to you and then sorry. The, pol- the police can't respond it's raining what do you fucking live in the sp- in springfield with the simpsons chief wiggum not coming out because it's raining <laughs> um so they did come out the next day and they and they said i should have dialed 999 but the thing is, is i wasn't under, i wasn't under any physical threat he was just so far gone that he had his trousers around his ankles i don't know why and then because I told him, look, if you need to go, because if you're still here and the police turn up, you're going to you're going to spend a night in the cells. You're going to go in the back of their car. And like, no, I'm not. I won't go with them. I'm going to stay here. And I said, I said, look, we all get paid to stay here. You're just being an idiot now. And then he was like, I'm getting paid to be here, too. And at that point, I would have been I was very tempted just to push him down the escalator. <laughs> I just <laughs> that would have been a crime. I just want to know. How he walked in with it. Now, did he actually have pants on around his ankle? Um, no, he was he was wearing his underwear, but yeah. his trousers were right down. Okay, so he kind of walked like that kind of shuffle walk. Yeah, but I, th- I think um, he, um, I think from what from what we found in the toilet that he was looking for the bathroom or looking for a bathroom or was so out of it he was about to poo anywhere <laughs> because he did poo on our floor. <laughs> okay, wait a second. You told this whole story about the guy with no pants on on the escalator, and it took you five minutes to get to the fact that he dropped a dookie on the floor. <laughs> and then just came back to me when I was talking about it. I blocked. How does that out. part slip your mind, Lauren? The guy dropped trow and then pooped on your floor. Because you block things out, Brian. You do. You have to block things out because you can't it's so forget. You know, I mean, now that I'm a middle-aged man, I sympathize with anybody who, who shits their pants because, you know, it happens. But only if it's like you who because you can't oops a turd. No, and he wasn't. I dropped he was. on your floor. He didn't oops that turd. He meant to put it there. And it was, oh, you just block things out. <sighs> like the time the people ditched their very drunk friend in the cinema and I ended up having to call the ambulance. Did he shit the floor? No, he weed himself and then it got on me. And then nobody would, the manager wouldn't stay and do the shit. Someone's, so I stay. someone's going to the bathroom and that's the part of the story you forget. Oh, yeah, he did weed himself. <laughs> You block it out, Brian. It's so horrible. You just have to block it out. It's terrible. Dude had no pants on. It was so weird. We told him the police were going to come. He said, no, they're not. Oh, and by the way, he also took his shit on the floor. What the fuck? You know, just go on to your date history. I can't handle this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> 
Jesus is the rest of the school. No, please don't. <laughs> I've got more stories about stuff like that. <clears throat> Stop it. All right, give me, your day, give me your day in history. Today in history, 25th of April, 1792. The guillotine was first used in France at the execution of highwayman Nicolas Pelletier. I have a problem with the guillotine. I can't. I didn't shit on the floor, Brian. We're okay. <laughs> what? Do you know what my problem with the guillotine is? Well, it's misnamed. Okay. Well, you speak French, right? Or at least you studied you... French. For a little bit, yes. Now, guillotine is the feminine version of his name. He was man, and it was a masculine. It was named after a masculine. I think, I think that's more to do with the way that it became perceived, because if you looked, if you think about all the propaganda around the guillotine, and it was Madame la Guillotine. You know, the guillotine was was always feminized. Yeah, but it was named after him. It was named after a man, so it should have had the masculine name. It doesn't really matter if his if his surname was a feminine name, then it would have stood. Did you know, Lauren, that when they lop your head off with the guillotine, you poop the floor? Well, I remember. I remember. That I it sort of just like, like you're at a I, theater in Swansea. Shut up. When I was doing when um because. A lot of my people that I research end up getting their heads cut off recently. Yeah, I've noticed that. <laughs> and um, one of the weird segues um, that I have done, because it was very interesting to me, like um, trying to work out what their final moment on Earth was like. I mean, you, you pre- with hanging, you, you, you know, pretty straightforward. You can see it more with hanging because you can see them struggling or you can see the neck break. So you can sort of have a very good educated guess about what's happening. And there's all these theories about what happens to you once your head's cut off, because obviously, do you instantly lose consciousness or are you conscious that you're dead? And can you see for a while? Well, there's been studies that the, the head um, will respond for up to 15 seconds. Um, that during and that part of that research was conducted during the French Revolution. Well, they had plenty Scient- of practice then. Scientists were taking the heads and um, <clears throat> were, were doing some sort of, but they were keeping the heads for days. But yeah, so is that yeah? So that's that's my thing. Um, I, I don't know how I went from um, 16th century executed queens to. And that, but it's what happens. It's just natural progression. Yeah. Ah, so she had her head cut off. How long would she have lived? You know, how long would that have taken her to die off? <laughs> Did you know, Lauren, that they, that there there were kings who had their heads cut off? Yes. Did you know there was once a king that was only twelve inches tall? Where is this going? He was a terrible king, but he made a great ruler. (laughs) I know that was terrible. But on that note, on that note, Lauren, 
All yeah, your fears are about to come true. Uh, I'm entering the Twilight Zone. Because I'm about to fire up the magic interview box. It's the magic interview box. Barn, if you have the nerve to pull the switch, we'll be back on with the great, legendary, the man, the myth, the mustache, our friend and yours, Neil Story. Any final words before we go to Neil, Lauren? Help me. Flip the switch. Lauren, 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 tonight is the night that the listeners' dreams and requests are answered because we we went to the hospital. We bailed him out of the hospital. Well, we didn't bail him. Stole him. Yeah, we stole stole them out of the hospital. No, I, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't have any. After the comment about you two gossiping about me, I did not. We'll get to that. We'll, we'll get to that. But <laughs> I did not steal. I did not bust him out of the hospital. I didn't want any part of it. I have been bribed with. Right. Um, with I with, busted him out of the hospital because not only do our listeners write in all the time and say they love paranormal shows, they want more. We get specific requests quite often, a lot from my mother, I have to admit, that we have to get Neil's story back on. But what you people might not know, unless you listen to the show, which you should be listening to the show, and if you're not listening to the show, go back and listen to old shows, is our dear friend Neil is now the $6 million man. He is Bionic Neil. <laughs> And Neil has a new hip, which gives him, um, he's going to be faster, stronger, more powerful. He is the bionic Neil. Welcome back, the one and only, the man, the myth, the mustache, the new hip, the king of hip, Neil Story. Oh, oh, thank you. Hello. Hello to you both. Hello to all the listeners and Thank you. That's really kind. Yeah, yeah. Springing me out of hospital was really nice. I was asleep in my hospital bed. Uh, I, I was just coming to and I, I, I sensed that the brakes had been released on it. And then I was being pushed uh, with this sort of wispy stuff on the forehead. And I looked up and all I could see is hair. And it, and it was Brian's beard. And yeah. brushing manfully against my forehead as he sweated himself, pushing me at high speed along uh, uh, a lovely unimpeded corridor. Uh, it was when we got out of the back of the hospital that it, it hit some sort of curb thing. And the top of my bed mattress flew then into the back of quite a large van. And I am now propelled to Param- Paranormal Central, where I'm being held prisoner by Brian's mother. Uh, you you use as a, a simple play thing for entertainment, uh, and and I join you here tonight in in the lap of love and luxury, in in, in the bosom of friendship. God bless you. <laughs> and and uh, all joking aside, in case <laughs> the British authorities are listening, I did not break into the hospital at Steel Neal. <laughs> How are you healing? Are you ta- are you paying attention to physical therapy? You getting up and about? You feeling better? Oh, bless your hearts. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I really am. I, do you know, I, I was in and out the same day. Absolutely incredible. And I'd like to pay tribute to the surgical team, the nursing team, the district nurses, everybody who's cared and, and sent messages of goodwill. Because, I mean, that's really uh, 
overwhelmed me and deeply touched me and helped me recover. I mean, I've got a long way to go, really, because the doctor says, you know, it's a month. You've got to recuperate. You've got to take it easy. The meds are pretty good. <laughs> I've got to say, <laughs> uh, uh, I, I'm gently coming off the meds. I'm down from two sticks to one. Uh, I've, I've, they, they don't stitch you up anymore. They, they staple you or, or whatever they call them. They're out. So I have to be careful now that I don't sit down quickly and pop like a sofa. I'm sure <laughs> I'm, sure I'm not going to burst like a sofa. Everything feels good. It's healing well. So all I can say to everybody who's cared and, and cares, um, just thank you. Thank you. I, I've had treatment here uh, in Northumberland in, in England from a medical team second to none and friends and well-wishers second to none as well. Thank you. And now you're Britain's new superhero with the bionic <laughs> parts. <laughs> he's not he's not britain's new superhero that that's <laughs> title's been given to somebody else oh i'm just looking forward to walking by a junkyard when they have one of those really big magnets on <laughs> to, 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 are they gonna t- am i gonna get sucked up onto that by my hip i just got a visual now, of that but every time you go abroad now you have to tell them about your hip so you don't that's have to go through the metal detector. Oh, that's great. Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I should look forward to that. Maybe I won't. I'll just forget about it and look forward to them going up and down with that examination hit. But it's not a prod, is it? It's like a like a sensor. And here we it's go. a wand. What you got in your pocket, Mr. Story? Oh, it's my hip. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm knowing you. You panic so much. You'll get flustered. You'll wait until they're doing the more serious exam before you remember it was your hip that set it off. Uh, you, you, Lauren, there's no way I'm going to get so far they're snapping on gloves, darling. No messy. <laughs> the Vaseline on the finger. That's not going to happen. No. Well, that's not what you told me. You said we could play that game when you came to town. Yeah, that, that's when it's done for fun, mate. I don't want it done by professionals. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> I'm a bit worried about you both, though. First, I find out you're gossiping about me. A little bit. And now, and now this. Oh, Lauren, okay, let me let me go to this. Lauren is convinced we were gossiping about her when I mentioned that you had said something about her drinking gin at the one Rippercon, which we weren't gossiping because we said that on the show the time you were here. When we were joking about you having the woman angry at you in the crowd, and then Lord was drinking the gins and wouldn't come to my defense. Do you remember that? Uh, I, you I just get confused now. I'm on drugs. I'm quite serious medication. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I can't remember any gossip. I don't do gossip. Oh, no, it was, it was, um, I don't remember that at all. What I was told in the last interview we did was that you, Neil, had told Brian that when I drink gin, I giggle. I, I, oh, <laughs> I'm going all Frankie Howard now. I, I don't know, Laura. I, I really don't. It, it's pre-med. Brian, I, I don't know, sweet. I, I've never grasped anybody so up. Uh, I, I just think, uh, I just think, enjoy your life. Rock on. 
You know? I don't get gin doesn't make me me giggle. Like I'm like the happiest, friendliest. I quit drinking. But when I was a drinker, anything I drink made me happy and friendly and everybody's best friend except gin, which made me want to fight everyone in the room. Ooh. No, I like I like a gin myself. You know, I, a, ni- a nice big lots of ice and tanqueray and other gins are available, of course. You know, I wouldn't turn many of them away. Pink gin is lovely. No, it's, it's never. In in fact, I'm planning for that to, as I come off the serious meds to feature in my replacement medical schedule. You know, it'd be great. <laughs> well, <laughs> might I recommend my mother's new favorite drink, thanks to our usual fearless foursome co-member, Kurt. Hey. Who could not be here today, but he will be next time. Oh, I'll miss you, Kurt. Who recommended... Um, slushy alcoholic beverages where you crush the ice and then like make like a, a slush cone out of it but with booze and my mother really partial to uh bourbon slushies yeah so you might want to try that when you're coming off the meds Ooh, well, what do you think of that Lonnie? would that be one for you um maybe but the first best person i've ever been drinking with was monique that was an amazing night. Me and me and Monique, we got lost in the East End of London, and we had a humorous time when we found Seething Lane. She's a, a remarkable lady, our Monique. Yeah. She, she really is I'm very funny, uh, and if anybody is there to lead someone astray, yeah, she would be one of the <laughs> I would certainly choose to to be led astray by. Great fun. Great. It was great. Great fun. Speaking of great fun, our topic tonight is paranormal people are going to love this, our UFO people are going to love this, and our skeptics and debunking people are going to love this, because it's all in this. What do you got for us, Neil? What are we going to be talking about tonight? Well, you're some of my oldest podcast friends, both of you, and Oh, I'm not know, this is the first. Correction. I'm one of your youngest podcast. <laughs> you are, but, but for the time, I mean, I yeah, wouldn't know where to start with a podcast. And you guys said, come on, let's try. And, and I, I'm going to share a little something that very few people know. That before, for maybe a, in, in 2015, I found an archive of UFO uh, witness statements, documents, first-hand accounts, all unpublished. Absolutely incredible stuff. Great stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about abductions. No, nothing, nothing that dramatic. But very good sightings. Some first-hand accounts dating right through the 20th century, from the earliest 20th century right up to the 1960s and 70s. And it's it's some cases are known because one of the members of the group that was involved in this research was a very, very good scrapbooker. But there are files, there are case histories, and it's a, an absolute goldmine. Now, I started working through this and you kind of, you know, the old saying, start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. Now, when I first saw it in 2015, I kind of earmarked where it was. Um, 
I didn't know of anybody else accessing it, but I was busy with First World War projects. And really only over the last two years, uh, and also thanks to lockdown, it slowed it down. But over the last two years, I've gone through the whole archive, I've photographed it, and it will turn into probably several books with time because I've never seen the like anyway. So having started at the beginning, it's rekindled an interest that I first had in the 1990s into something known as the Zeppelin scare ships. Now, I know and acknowledge several people had written some very good articles and carried out some very good research on this over the years. In, indeed, it was an article in Flying Saucer Review, uh, which I, all I found was it was in a library. I found two pages. And it, it had this excerpt and I wasn't even sure what magazine it was from. I tracked it to Flying Saucer Review. And that would have been, yeah, as I say, in the, in the 90s, very early 1990s. And it was fascinating because it was what they called Zeppelin scare ships, or it was not Zeppelin scare ships, just scare ships in 1909 in Great Britain. And if I put it this way, 23rd of March, 1909, Police Constable Kettle, the Peterborough Police, was on patrol. It was hardly light. Uh, dawn wasn't far off, but he was on patrol in Peterborough on Cromwell Road. And he was attracted by this sound as he was turning a corner and he thought it was a motor car. He thought, what's going on? And this is, you know, if someone's on the road at that time of the day, those years, a policeman could stop the car or, or stop anybody and inquire, what is your business at this ungodly hour? But when he went round the corner, there was no car there. And he looked around and he couldn't see it. And then he thought, well, I'll look up. And above him, this whirring sound. Overhead, now remember this, to put this into a little bit of context, this is before Blerio flew the channel. It is the same year, but it is before Blerio, so nobody had ever flown over the channel. In 1909, powered flight is not 10 years old. It's still an, a, a thing of incredible fascination all the world over. But what we had seen in the press is that over in Germany, they were building rigid airships, zeppelins, considerably bigger, with a capability to travel further than anybody else in the world was producing. Now, remember, this is a time of ironclads. You know, there's a there's a navy race between Britain and Germany to these two great nations, great concern. It was a, it was a time of fri friction and discord, you know, that really ended with the First World War. It was one of the things that we, we could, it's the road to war at this time. So people were a, a bit twitchy. There had been one or two incidents with ships around the world. So this police constable looks up 
and he sees the shape of what he could only describe as a great airship above him. We in Britain have nothing capable of this. The only idea of what of what we have for for there's a little bit of powered flight. There are some, there's balloons. They used to have balloon ascents. But he sees a, a, a powerful, fast moving. The only thing in his comprehension he could describe it as was an airship going over his head. He thinks it's, a you know, well over 100 feet long and the thing's got a searchlight. And it flies over. This is War of the World stuff. What on earth do you do? So he reported it to the press. And it kicked off. Have, have you guys ever heard of the scare ships before? Oh, I have. Um, you know, there were some in the States around that time, too, that they had okay. spotted flying around um, the Statue of Liberty and other objects in, in New York around the harbor. Wow. That some people think... <clears throat> they were early Zeppelin technology, early German airships. How they would have gotten to New York at 1909, 1910, no one could explain. Mm. Was the U.S. government working on stuff like that? Well, we weren't that obsessed with building technology of, of flight and weapons at that point in the United States. It wasn't until World War One that we really started that. So I don't know. It's weird. I know that it did not say Goodyear on the side of it. <laughs> yeah. that, that I know for sure. But what's strange is that I know in, in the American West in the 1890s, maybe we'll look at that with, with, with Kurt and all other experts, because I'm no expert on the American West sightings, but they certainly had airships. They believed were, you know, sighted in the American West, whether that's ho hoax or not. I don't know whether this is a hoax. I don't know. but. What was intriguing is that this is March 1909. Rapidly afterwards, no, there is a denial. Now, this is intriguing. In 1909, that's when they kind of begin uh, looking after. Well, they, they set up something called the, the SIS, which is the Secret Intelligence Service. It's an it's an organization that evolves into MI5, which has got and that's responsible for the protection of Great Britain at home and MI6, which works for the protection of Great Britain abroad. In effect, there's some crossover. And it's interesting that that really started after all this, but there must have been so maybe it was special branch. We don't know but an unnamed spokesperson for the police in Peterborough puts it out there that once this gets into the press and they talk about this airship going over, once it gets in the press, they say, oh, no, 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 no. It, it was not an airship. Oh, no, it was a kite being flown nearby with a Chinese lantern attached to it. And the whirring noise, well, that's the fans on the bakery at the co-op, the cooperative store just around the corner. Now, remembering, you know, PC Kettle is a beat policeman. He knows the sounds. He knows the sights. 
he's walked, the, you know, he knows the beat well. He's now I've met his family that years ago when I was doing talk, my first ever talks on Zeppelin air raids. I gave a talk in Peterborough and I met descendants of PC Kettle. He always, according to them, he always swore. What he saw was what he saw. He saw something unexplained in the air. And this thing may have been shaped like a Zeppelin, but it traveled far too quickly. And there is no way on this earth that that was a kite. Well, who on earth is flying a kite before dawn? With a hundred foot kite. Why would you do that? Yeah, yeah and who's flying a hundred hundred foot long kite with a Chinese lantern on it before dawn? The the, the byline was that PC Kettle was mistaken, but here's the twister when we get to may time over east anglia which is that if you look at great britain there's a great bump on the side of it norfolk suffolk essex there are accounts from across there in may of us the so-called scare ships being seen essex suffolk norfolk but when you plot these accounts they're all citing similar things on similar nights on a similar path passage pathway as well it's really intriguing and what is intriguing is that from where the zeppelin base was in germany unless the germans were being very very coy about it it didn't really have the range to get over great britain and certainly wouldn't be able to reach america so it, it is odd, to say the least. There was always this thing that they didn't want panic in Great Britain, you know, that they so maybe they're, they're spinning a yarn to the British people. When I wrote my book, it was called the Zeppelin Blitz. It, looked, it was the first blitz. When we had lots of Zeppelin air raids over Britain, over over Britain during the First World War. Really, we'd, ne we'd not seen a German Zeppelin, to our knowledge, over here until 1915, until the first Zeppelin air raid uh, on the 19th of January 15. We'd not really seen anything like that over, over here, not a rigid Zepp. And I thought once I started delving into the, the Bundes archive records, talking to those interested in German airships in Germany, I thought there would be some account from some member of crew, one of the commanders of a Zeppelin, that would be proud in his memoirs written after the First World War, or even during, that they had flown these missions over Britain. You would have thought in one of the German newspapers, maybe as propaganda, to say, oh, well, we've been flying over Britain since before the war. There would be some declaration. But there is nothing. And it wouldn't make sense if it was an experimental Zeppelin of German origin. Obviously, to be a Zeppelin, it would be of German origin. To, to, to fly it over England and all those places in the UK. First off, where are they going to land and store it in between those missions? Where are they going to be able to keep it safe? And they would they risk an experimental flight going over the UK 
if it was something they were just working on the technology, they're not going to risk letting it get in someone else's hands. No, no. Not now, not was it a British ship that maybe they were working on prior to that? I, I, well, if it seems to have worked. Like it. Exactly. Even, it seems to have worked. So if it was, then why didn't they ever use it? But Brian, we, during the First World War, in Great Britain, we had, they were, they were, really just scouting airships and nowhere near the length of the rigid zeppelins that the germans had in fact the the big zeppelins that you will see that we had after the first world war that was technology and airships that we captured from the germans we never got anything near that ours were small they weren't capable of really getting the other they couldn't get the other side of the channel they went they were out and they were used for scouting for U-boats and scouting for Zeppelins. They couldn't fight a Zeppelin in one of our little scouting uh, airships. They simply weren't big enough to have this huge size. What also is interesting, in these accounts of the, the German Zeppelins during World War One, they couldn't carry a searchlight. They carried flares that they could drop on like a parachute that's kind of strike it and down it would go and, and blaze away. But they speak in 1909 very much of searchlights and in fact once we get beyond 1909 some people say they just stopped well i tell you what when you get beyond may june july august september i've uncovered accounts of scare ships mystery airships even over the time now, this is in, in, in where I am at the moment, in Northumberland, at the mouth of the Tyne, over Jarrow, over the docks there. It was report. And this is I mean, there's very good people, not just ordinary one offs. Lots of people working together. There was a the owner of a they were dock workers, a dock work company, and they were loading a ship. And. This thing went over the top and it had some kind of searchlight and it threw them into worry, really, because they were planning a government dock, possibly for uh, submarines or, or, or some uh, more military purpose in Jarrow. And this thing flew over and there's a beam of light coming down that's illuminating quite a considerable over this area. It went from Tyne Dock and Jarrow area. That's intriguing because within a few days of that, the the usual it, it, it suddenly appears in the press. Doesn't say where it comes from. Oh well, this story we can knock that on the head because in fact it was the experimental flight of an air uh, an airship that is being developed by one of the factories on the time. Well, I can assure you, I've got. Uh, there was a book called Jane's. Now, you might have heard of Jane's books that do all the battleships, all the aircraft. Well, one of the first ever Jane's was a, a book of dirigibles where they even had a blank white box. And it would say under construction for some of them. And I and I've double checked the records. And as far as I know, and if any listener can put me right on this, if I've got it wrong, please do. But I can find no company on the time that was developing an airship in 1909 and and they certainly 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 were not having experimental flights on the time in fact the first airship base to be constructed 
in Northumberland or Tyneside was 1919 after the First World War. That's a great point. And this is something that I think makes you uniquely qualified to study this and look into this is because you are a historian and an expert on the First World War. So you're familiar with the technology in the countries, different countries' technologies during that war, which is a few years after this, what uh, five years after this sighting. What countries would have had even close to the technology to do this, other than the UK and Germany? Was there France anybody else? Had, France had some airships, but they, France were very much in the same boat as us. That they are very small. Think about other countries during the First World War. Who else has got Zeppelins that they can go and deploy around Europe? Nobody. Nobody. It, it's, it's the German Naval Airship Division in the same way <clears throat> when we had in 1906, we had the Dreadnought, which was the finest battleship the world has ever seen. The first all turbine driven, all big gun ironclad battleship was HMS Dreadnought. It made all of the other surface navies superfluous. It led to that naval race. Germany, you, people cannot argue the task on it, but there was nobody who could touch them for these rigid long-range Zeppelins. Nowhere. Nobody no. You, you can't even say the U.S. Now, if it was 30 or 40 years in the future, oh yeah, you could say the U.S. But in 1909, the U.S. wasn't capable of that. No. No. And what is interesting, you know, these arguments that you'll see now, I, I don't know all the details of Roswell. I don't pretend to. But don't you think it's intriguing that they were using an excuse like it's a weather balloon? <laughs> you know, these excuses, it, it, it doesn't work. These are, these are the same sort of excuses they're trying on people 50 years later, you know, and you'll see. They'll come out with these answers. Oh, well, it's been developed on the time and it kills the story. And it makes me want. I mean, I know for a fact there is something called in Great Britain and not a lot of people know this. It's called or was called a D notice. Now, a D notice is issued to the press. And that means you do not publish this. It comes from cabinet office, you know, upwards. If it's a matter of national security, that kind of thing, they can use that. And you'll say, right, you don't have to. But if you do publish it, uh, you will be not looked on very happily by uh, by by government and government cir cir circles. And, uh, you know, when it comes to you having a, a license to print and distribute your newspapers in the future, when it comes to renewal, there will be black mark against you. Or as we say in America, don't shit where you eat. <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> well, it, it's an interesting point because in the U.S., there were a ton of UFO sightings into the 50s, 60s, and 70s where people would draw these pictures of what they saw. And people from all over the place were drawing the same thing, and we were all everyone was freaked out by it. 20 years later... Oh, my God, that drawing's almost identical to the stealth bomber, which That's was an it. experimental airplane at the time. Now, of course, the government was saying, ah, it's nothing, it's nothing, it's nothing. They're not going to admit we have this technology that we're experimenting with. But then 
boom, 20 years later, here's the stealth bomber. That's what all your UFO sightings were. That didn't happen here. That didn't happen. It's It's not like, yeah, a hundred more than 120 years later, no one's come out and said, yeah, that's what it was. It never came out. It just was a weird phenomenon. It really is. And And what is odd, when you looked at the postcards in the First World War of Zeppelin air raids taking place over Britain, the, and these are produced by, in Germany. They capitalize on this sort of legend that Zeppelins carry searchlights. And they've always got this light shining out the front of them and the undercarriage and stuff. They never carried a searchlight, but they're capitalizing on that. But there's just nothing. There's nothing. It's easy for people to sit back and try and debunk and say, well, it must have been a, a German airship on a long range mission. But it just doesn't add up. You can kill a story, but actually look into it. Was it possible? This is the earliest days. So many of those early airships, they're crashing. They're damaged. They simply don't have the capability. It's, it's, we haven't even got a man in a, in a canvas and wood aircraft over the channel yet. Somebody setting off from France. You know, these guys, they, if you're flying a Zeppelin, you ain't going to be setting off from France. You are setting off from Germany or perhaps, I mean, there's no evidence for this at all, a, a German occupied North or territory, North Sea Island. And there's no evidence for that either. These things are too big to put onto a battleship and inflate on a deck and then flow over. That was one of the suggestions. It Nothing so far adds up. And none of the. And here's a, here's an interesting thing. On more than one account of when people were, it's one account, it's very local, it's, and it, it typifies several. Now, in those days, lamps did not run, tend to run on batteries. They tend to run on something called carbide. Now, carbide is a, it, it, you, you add water to it uh, and it, it, it becomes liquid, very volatile, and you, you could soon spark that up and you'll have a carbide lamp. So these are a bit different. Some of them are oil and some might even be a candle lamp that you place into your lantern so you can see where you're going on your bicycle. And it's weird that in a number of these encounters, including one on Roxham Bridge. Now, that's in Norfolk, my home county. And a guy stopped to attend to his lamp. So this is not going to be battery. It's certainly not going to be electric. There's a chance if you stop your bike and you've got a dynamo, the light goes out anyway. So what's going on there? Something's put his light of some description out. And this happens to I know three cases people have stopped because their lamp on their bicycle has gone out. Now, if you're into your UFOs, you will have heard of car engines shutting off. You'll hear of car, you know, the battery just dies or the engine just dies. And then when there's the ufo goes over the car can start again but this is odd this is in more than one happening in great britain before any sort of electrical power is going on in different people's bicycles they've stopped they're attending to their lamp and something goes over their head which is a an airship or a scare ship or in the truest sense of the word and it's before these words were put together it is an an unexplained flying object before the term UFO was coined. 
you know, it, it's 50 years before that was coined nylon. So now, I didn't mean to cut you off, but it just hit me. In any of the reports, now, I understand a lot of debunkers will say, well, you can't trust the news reports because the media was so corrupt. And that's true then as it is now. Yes. But from all the witness accounts and the testimonies, not testimonies, but statements, did anybody ever describe any markings on the ships? Any windows? Anything that looked like a cockpit? Like, you know, the Zeppelins have the the, the cockpit underneath it? or. Well, what, that's a really intriguing thing, Brian and Lauren. You know, it, they do. They describe, in some cases, seeing people in a in a in a gondola. Under, they describe it as a gondola or or some sort of carriage underneath it or part of it, and they they claimed that they've seen people moving around. It it really is odd. Yeah, it's just, like I said, what gets me, it, it's the... But there's no markings been seen on it. Yeah. They actually thought at one point that um, a guy had seen one of these scare ships go over. And he found something that he said looked a bit like a, a float. Uh, this is down in Essex. I think it was... Uh, and. He said it looked, it looked like a float and it had some sort of writing on it that gave a German manufacturer. So I thought, ah, that's it. Clearly, it's one of the the weight sacks. That, they've lost it. It's fallen down. It's given the game away. But it turned out it wasn't the case. In fact, what it was, it was a manufacturer that made weighting or float sacks for naval gunnery uh, markers out at sea. And that's what it had come off. It hadn't been dropped. No one's seen it fall. It was just found on a beach area near the, near where the sighting had taken place. These are strange. These are they're not seen in daylight. They're seen in twilight. There's a shape. There's no marking. There's no flag. Germans in the First World War were known for dropping things deliberately when they raided Britain. They would drop things like a decorated ham bone. Uh, with some message on it, uh, some, they would drop newspapers. And in fact, there were one or two instances during the this is during the First World War of when those operating the Zeppelin were wearing their German sailors hats. And they clearly had fallen off <laughs> and they landed on the ground. They became really prized things that people have. No, nothing was found, no trace. And this is intriguing. If they were using a. It, the first thing that ever fell on Britain from a Zeppelin that we know about was a canister for a flare. And that was on, on the village of Martham. And that was on the 19th of January, 1915. If these airships, these scare ships were using searchlights, as they said, well, no searchlight. OK, if they're dropping uh, some sort of flare with a parachute, there would have been something be it the casing for it or parts of the, the the chute or the material that burned on the way down, something would have been found that had been dropped. Nothing was found. It just, it, it so baffles me because, like I said, I'm a skeptic. 
I'm not, you know, my mind doesn't go to UFOs. My mind goes to what were not we as the U.S., but we as a planet doing that could explain this. And, and there's no logical explanation. The, the, the one that makes the most sense would be it's something that the, 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 the UK was doing secretively, but they weren't very fucking secretive about it if they were flying it over all these populated areas. There's a lot of places in the UK where there ain't any fucking people they could have flown these <laughs> test missions over. We simply didn't have the technology. There was the technology to make small, what they used to call them blimps, coastal scouts. Uh, they, these were, it never emerged during the Great War. If we'd had that tech, we would have been using it to take the fight back to, to, to Germany uh, and German-occupied areas. We simply did not have that technology until after the Great War to have these huge rigid types <clears throat> we just didn't we didn't have it there is a, a fellow by the name of willows he was actually from from wales and he was developing airships with the british military but they were going down to areas near london places like wormwood scrubs so he was going down to aldershot these are not big enough they're not capable and they're very very limited at that period in time you know, it, it really isn't. Now, Lauren, are you there, my lovely? Oh, well. Oh, she's on mute. No, I'm, I am here, yeah. Lauren, now, having mentioned Wales, I don't know, are you familiar with some strange things that just predate the, the scare ships in Great Britain? Have you heard of the Egrin Lights? Um, No. Because that is also a fascinating phenomena. And maybe if, if you do find the time one day, maybe, you know, you, you've heard of the man in Havana and maybe I'm the man in Norfolk or Northumberland. But you're the lady in Wales, uh, the, the mistress of mysteries. Uh, maybe one day have a little dig around because I, 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 I'd love to know more about them. This is 1905 and thereabouts. There is a little chapel called Egwin, and a very devout lady is there. And, and she, these lights have become connected to, to her as if she's uh, generating these lights through some religious fervor. Uh, that's what some people suggest. It, some people suggest it was a coincidence. Some people say it were they were flarings from a nearby uh, foundry or factory. But for those that saw them, these were great sweeping lights and lights in the sky. And that was in Egrin in Wales. So what, what on earth is going on at the, when people have not seen anything quite like this? That's some ghostbusters shit. But lights in the sky. So what's going on? I, 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 um, when I was doing my paper out, um, just it was daylight it was i think it was summer it was definitely spring or summer and it was well it was tea time-ish and um there were these lights yeah in the sky were they were they white or golden or do you remember no. color to them? um um i remember because i back in the early 2000s you used to be able to buy these lights and they'd come in different shapes and ironically 
the flying saucer shape and they would change color in the middle like they would sort of go from um yellow to green and blue and that's what it was doing yeah. well i never sounds like a um, traffic light in the sky no no it wasn't like that it was um yeah, it wasn't like a traffic light. It wasn't changing like a traffic light. It was like, you know, those lights that they slowly change into other colours. Yes, a, mor- a morphing colour. Well, yeah, and, and what's funny as well is that um, it was sort of going down the big road towards, yeah, towards Kingsbridge. Um, and it was so, sort of like, not over... The, ch- the the Baptist Chapel, but it was kind of like in that area of sky, but further away, like higher up. But it was in that area I saw it as I was standing in front of a chapel. Wow. Was this in Swansea? Yeah. It's where I live, in the village where I live. There, there's something to it. There's something to these lights in the sky. It, it's a... what what What's happening in Wales and that... It, it, I think it's absolutely fascinating. Once you start digging into lights in the sky, I mean, it, the trouble is, people, we still don't understand what UFOs are, what other things we see in the sky. Can you imagine how that felt to people in the 19th century? You know, there's astronomers recording phenomena. They don't know what they're seeing. And the funny thing is, people talk about, oh, well, that it's all a big scare in the 1960s or the 50s when they start producing the films. But if you think of it, a more simple time in this world, in the late 19th, early 20th century, well, how many people were looking up, really taking time to look in the sky? Because let's face it, most people, you know what's up there. It's going to it's going to be the weather. It's going to be birds. It, it ain't you know, it's it's. Well, would you keep looking at the sky as documented in the fascinating new book by our dear friend, Tim Schwartz mimics the others among us, oh, wow. which is a history of Brian. Stop plugging the book. Stop I have, well, the first book. off, he's a friend of mine. <laughs> it's his newest book. And uh this really ugly, hairy guy wrote the foreword for it, so Neil, you should check it out. But this is a—it's all about history and the sightings of. This primarily focuses on mimics, you know, uh, skinwalkers, angels, demons, aliens that walk among us. But it just shows that, and one of the things the book points out is that every culture in recorded history has reported these things. People have seen them for what they are. We don't know. Some we've been able to figure out some we haven't, but it's not a phenomenon. Like you said, from the 1950s and 60s scare, this goes back as far as recorded time. Fuck. The Bible's got cases of people seeing shit in the sky. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And people going sky, skyward from the earth. Speaking of going religious. I would just like to I just like to um clarify they do not see shit in the sky. 
they see things they see signs and things happening in the sky not shit because we've already had hate mail because of you and your interpretations of the bible yeah please just stop did you know that apparently remember you know god told moses you can't look at my face you got to look at my tuchus right remember no he didn't say that brian so I said, apparently Moses wrote, baby got back <laughs> and it's in the Bible. I got a lot of hate mail saying that that's not in the Bible. So if you, if you're looking for the lyrics to baby got back, they're not in Exodus. Neil's not commenting. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I, I, I think that's a stick. You do not want to, you don't want to poke. I, I'm, I'm not going there on that one. I, I love the worlds of mysteries. But what I will, and I like, I like the idea of the book, and I do think there's a lot to be said for ancient aliens. And I, I want to introduce you to a man who predates von Daniken. Von, and he predates many of the ancient alien theorists. And his name is W. Raymond Drake. And it's probably a, a guy that many people will not have heard of. Messengers from the stars, of course. See, and, and uh, he did spacemen or gods, and that was in the early early sixties. He wrote about seven different books looking at the ancient aliens theories. He's almost forgotten today, and he was one of the very first to fully articulate these ideas. He. He was a northerner. He he spent a lot of his life in Sunderland. How about that? So I think people should look out his books and celebrate the life of one of our very first ancient alien theorists, W. Raymond Drake. And I think you'll enjoy him because he's a thumping good read. He actually is. He was recommended to me by a um, dear friend of our show who sadly passed away, uh, the great Timothy Green Beckley. Um, Thank you, the there, Brian. He did what? not pass away. He, they came and took him home. That's right. He did not pass away. He was taken home to his mother planet. Mr. UFO himself was, was a dear friend and a friend of the show before he passed. And he was one of the early writers on Ancient Aliens. And, well, God, Tim Green put out like 100 books. <laughs> he was a prolific little man. Crazy as a loon, but a hell of a nice guy. We all loved him. He had Tim a kind of guy. We would tell him to his face, you know you're crazy as a fucking loon. He'd be like, of course I'm crazy as a fucking loon. I'm Mr. UFO, Timothy Green Beckley. <laughs> <laughs> he was the greatest. But he had the best stories. I think he we did. spent one show, we spent nearly three hours just listening to him, his stories. And I think the longest story was... Was it a William Shatner story where it took like 45 minutes for him to tell the William Shatner story? He he told he told us some amazing stories. And I used to get emails from him and I would love it because the emails would be as crazy as he was. It would just be, hey, Brian, and then like clips of newspaper articles of random things. Not even about UFOs or things, just like literally clipping things at random and just like sending them in an email. <laughs> he was just nuts. I loved him. But, but he, he just, took the topic serious. He he is, well, 
in, in Great Britain, there was a, an, another forgotten author. He never wrote on aliens, but he wrote beautifully about Great Britain. And his name was Arthur Mee. And he wrote a series of books, county by county, called The King's England. And he had all sorts of quirky history, beautiful landscape history, architecture. He had it all in there. And he described himself in his life as a child of wonder. But he went through the, this world with open eyes, seeing, learning and research. He said, we're all children of wonder. The minute you grow up and you forget to wonder. And that's when you forget to truly learn. And that's when you you lose that passion, that quest to learn more, because none of us will never learn it all and know it all. None of us will. And I've got to be honest, I don't want to solve every mystery. No, I really don't. I want to research them. I want to keep true and, 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 and not perpetuate myth per se. But I love legend and mystery. And when I see works like W. Raymond Drake, he all these years, he's been gone for years. The stories speak to you. And with good authors by these guys, the story and his research was so original, so exciting. And it's writers like that that have inspired me. And, and I sincerely hope that all these years of trying to find new things and bring bring something new to the table, I hope that, that, that that's going to be one of my legacies. I, people have been very, very kind, uh, particularly in my illness, and they've written to me and they talked about how I've inspired them. And, and some of the greatest rewards I've ever had are my students that write to me and said, I had, and, and I just did one course with you, I did one module with you, and I wanted to be a historian like you. And they find me years later and let me know or they come to one of my talks. And that's the greatest legacy. If I can leave this world with more children of wonder like me. <laughs> well, and you are you're keeping that alive. And I'm not just saying this because you're sitting here on the show. But reading you is like having someone in the room telling a story oh, and that's the way I write. that's how I try to write too. And, and that's one of the things, you know, and it's inspiring that when people will say to me, and it's the highest compliment is like, when I read your book, it was like, you were sitting there telling me the story. Yes. Yes. And I'm like, I hear your voice. Yes. You're, I'm not taking in a lesson. Like I'm in class you're sitting there telling this to me. And I'm like, you know, that's because the writers I admire, Neil Story, Paul Begg, these people do that. Yeah. And, and yeah. to me, yeah. I mean, one of the most thrilling things in my life was, you know, when I had my first book published, I could put a copy of it on the bookshelf next to all the authors that inspired me. Yes. So that yes. my book is up there next to your book on the shelf, you know. Oh, you're amazing. But I've yes. got to say, I've got to say, when I, I've always had an interest, well, yeah, since my teens, in the crimes and times of Jack the Ripper. And when there were authors, they've got Paul Begg, Martin Fido, who be, became a, a, a good friend. We 
would often breakfast together and talk at conferences and dine together. Wonderful man. Donald Rumbelow. And of course, the wonderful Stuart P. Evans, men that, that I had admired as a as a as a youngster coming up in, in in the subject and to be able to call them my friends to eat drink and be merry with them it's it's absolutely wonderful a blessing and i miss martin fido so much he he's he he wrote so well and i miss the conversations that we shared so when i produced my i produced a book called the blackout murders earlier this year which looks at homicide in world war ii he loved his crime he loved his biographies and so that was dedicated to martin fido very sadly missed gentleman an erudite gentleman a wonderful writer and i commend his books be it on jack the ripper or his wonderful biography of oscar wilde i commend his writing to you as I do all of those that I, I mentioned, read it and enjoy it. And, and even if you never met them and you can find them on, on documentaries on, on a lot of the, you know, on the Watch Again channels or on YouTube. And you will hear their voices, too. You're absolutely right, Brian. The, the greatest compliment is when people say, I, I, I've been to your talks and I hear you in your books. It, it's a wonderful wonderful thing and a blessing and i'm, I'm humbled and, and truly truly thankful that people in enjoy the, the the books that that i and we work work so hard on to to bring something new to the table to share something new it, it's i think we're very very lucky people and very i have lucky. to say it is very difficult to um in to give um a unique talk on Jack the Ripper or have a unique angle and that's something that you always seem to um achieve though oh Lon thank you I think mine was the unique the uniquest one (laughs) 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 that's the thing I I um yeah because I was quite surprised that even after because I was quite hard on Hanny Rubenhold she still hasn't blocked me on Twitter I got away with it (laughs) Well, Lauren, I've always admired your stance and particularly the way that you've explored another great passion of mine, which is women's history. And that I know that there there is a lot more to come from the pen of of Lauren Davies. I know that. Uh, it's, it's, and I really look forward to seeing it on, on, on women's history, particularly. I think it's very important that women's history is explored but the thing is is um there is a lot of people that aren't there are those with the loudest voices who aren't ready to (laughs) receive what i'm particularly interested in so it is sort of something that you have to sort of take the safer routes to in to sort of introduce yourself as somebody that deals with um women's um legal rights throughout history and it wasn't something I could do very much it wasn't something I could do very well in my master's simply because the um the the documentary evidence to support female prisons isn't there I mean the the pretty the strongest thing I found 
was in the um in the archives of Lambeth Palace where you have where they keep the wills and they keep the medieval wills there and you have um Richard Whittington's will yes that one <laughs> and um he does at Newgate he rebuilds Newgate so the rebuild of Newgate is predominantly the Newgate that was there up until it was torn down and he does build a women's wing and that surprised my dissertation supervisor because he he had no he to him the way that medieval society work is that women were the responsibility of somebody not necessarily the property but mm. they were the responsibility so their debts were usually the responsibility of the male member of the family whether that was the father the brother or the husband or you know the the closest male relative that was available so to understand that they were going to prison was something that even was quite new then and it's still something that does need a lot of work but I mean they didn't keep um, they didn't document the process of entering and leaving prison as it was in later centuries like you can find jail receipts because they're called jail receipt books they're big massive 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 um bits of parchment where you could have the name the crime and the bits and pieces like that um and then you never found out when they left because that wasn't important anymore so it was just you had them going in but you never had them coming out but you have your evidence to to get that these women were being you know they are being admitted to prison i mean that's a start I think that there there was a need to build um, female prisoner wings. That's what was interesting because mm. when you identify a need, and you see it in the church courts, because if you go to the clink, that was before it was sort of separated into a separate prison. It was part of the palace of Winchester, and they would have they would have had cause to incarcerate women if there was if they had committed a, um, a religious crime whether that was heresy heresy yes prosecution yeah. prostitute yeah. you know it was because you do in in the period that I talked about you do sort of get the blurring of lines where people don't always take a debt to the church courts because the church courts could turn around and say well you shouldn't have lent them the money anyway go away whereas well, if they you do that now um church courts predominantly deal with well no they only deal with issues of uh, ecclesiastical law if um a priest were especially this is i'm talking about the anglican church if an anglican priest were to administer a sacrament wrong or perform a wedding in the incorrect way or perform a wedding that wasn't encompassed in the law that accompanied that sacrament then they would go through the church courts but that's all the church courts do now is that is is a regulating body which so it's like a disciplinary procedure rather than what it was which was a proper law court where you could take somebody there if um you were challenging um, challenging somebody trying to get them to acknowledge that they were the father of a child um heresy some types of murders even pop up sometimes as well, uh, depending on who you murder. Um, priests that had 
transgressed in some way were kept in the cells and then you see the clink sort of bit come away as a separate building from that and, you just and, and this isn't a silly question seriously were, were there sexual crimes as well that would be involved with the church prosecute those things like bestiality yeah. or sodomy yes yeah but yeah. sodomy wasn't a crime until the 1530s i think 1533 what brought that about? Do we know, is that known or, or a reason? The Reformation. Yeah. When yeah. the crown, when you had somebody's somebody who started the Reformation, um, his the his his own brand of theology started feeling laws. Okay. By his, his interpretation of the Bible and his and the Scripture, because he yeah. um Henry. What we've got to remember is that up until Arthur died, he was having a clerical education to prepare him to go into um, the church. Yeah, I mean, this is a far earlier time period than I know well. But what what I mean, I, there's a lot of things there I didn't I really didn't know. Yeah, you're yeah. not that old, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> not from personal experience. Although you are walking with a cane, so human bartender. <laughs> yeah, my alter ego, yeah, Jackie Daytona. <laughs> I got to get back to the topic though because I have a question. I'm totally hijacked. <laughs> no, that's fine because I, I just have a burning question about these scare ships. Yeah. The term is so fucking great i mean was it an invention of the media i mean where did scareship comes from because i mean that's just that's badassery it's like why do we remember jack Ripper to this day because it was an unsolved serial killing no because someone gave him the name jack the ripper and it stuck yeah absolutely where did scareship well, come from at the period in time the most common phrase was were, were mystery airships not as good it doesn't ring does it no. and you get phantom airship but then they, they as it progressed through may and beyond and certainly in, in more recent years you can you can see this there's no one place i can find the the absolute earliest earliest and say well they must have thought that up it seems to have been in circulation because it, these are thought to be, well, they are ships of the air. They are airships. And they're scary. And they and it's a big scare. So yeah. airship scare, scare ships. It works. It works, as, as you say, just like Jack the Ripper, spring Heel Jack. It works. It's evocative. But where that came from is as mysterious as who was giving these reasons for why it was taking place. <laughs> Although I suspect the sources were two very different places. <laughs> now, were all of them described similarly? I mean, as being a hundred feet long. Oh, they're all huge. They're absolutely. They're huge. all huge. All fast moving. Yep. And how low were they? I mean, how, or should I say, how high were they since they were in the air? They were descriptions of them appearing to be some of the churches in East Anglia. They are around about 150 foot tall with pinnacles mm -hmm. on top at the corners of the tower. And there were concerns for some of the sightings that the airship was low enough to have caught, almost low enough to have caught on the pinnacles. 
But therein lies a problem. Because people have never really seen flying objects before. So there is little or no concept of how big the thing is actually in how big it is really in the sky. It will look. I think that's a problem as well is is when you're trying to determine determine what they saw because they're not seeing because they've they wouldn't have encountered something that was flying before could could their imagination have been working overtime and filling in gaps because they're seeing something flying yes i think you're right it's it's an incredible phenomenon and brian asked the question could people see things moving well people had seen what they call balloon ascents these were quite popular uh at, at, at sort of fates and fairs that the balloon would be tethered up tethered to a rope and it would ascend and then it would be brought down again and people could spend you know a bit of money and they could go up and have a look and come down there were balloon flights from the late 18th century where the you know beyond the montgolfiers that this was an entertainment where the balloon would go up and it would be carried on the on the wind as they Is are but they all have a basket. They have a basket underneath that people can see people in them. So you're quite right that there could be some sort of logic. You know, if you're frightened, you 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 don't know what you're seeing. What are you projecting onto this? Are there people in that vessel moving around, or are they in a gondola underneath it, or are you exp- because you don't know what you're looking at? Your brain is filling in the gaps that there should yeah. be people somewhere visible on this craft, and you can't I, see anybody. Sorry, sorry. I was thinking of a novel that I uh, that I was reading um, called The Aerialists, and it's about um, balloon flight. Mm. And the two of the main characters they practice their routine at night. So could they have been seeing aerialists? I don't know if that's the proper word. It's the word they use in the book. Could they have been seeing aerialists practicing? I'd like to take a stab at that. As you know, I'm usually the skeptic who says, yeah, obviously could be aerialists. But the things that don't match up with this are the speed at which it was going, the size and the noise. Yeah, I mean, sometimes there's no noise. And Lauren, I mean, you're as right or as wrong as all of us. We don't know. But. I think if they're aerialists, do they do they bail out from a balloon, Lauren? Um, not always. Sometimes they would perform acrobatic feats and then go back into the balloon, but they would be suspended in the air. Or but they the balloon is tethered; through. it's not moving. Um, no. Uh, in in this in the account that it was because it was based on a true story about. Yeah. Uh, um an exhibition in Cardiff and um and the, I don't want to give too much away just in case somebody wants to go away and read it yeah, but yeah. um sometimes the balloon would be tethered and then sometimes there would be a balloon flight and the person then would do a jump out of it wow wow well all I can say is if it was Peterborough and there were balloonists practicing I think the police would have said, we found out what this is. It's the balloonists and they are practicing. 
because I think they were scrabbling for anything for an explanation. But the thing is, is, is that that wasn't they were they weren't um, sort of people that stayed around in one place very often. They That's would move a good around. point. So as I, it, as I say, you you could be right. I don't. I'm sorry, if it if it goes, <laughs> I am not so much of a skeptic. But when it's aliens, I'm kind of like I think it's very difficult well, to believe. Well, for, for my money, there are. It's, there are aliens like us. I, I think it's certainly. Google. Sorry, carry on. Sorry. No, I was just going to say it's just um, from speaking to astrophysicists and they find it difficult to believe that there would be another set of people out in the galaxy like us. It, the biology would be significantly different because to think that you would get two of the same planet, it's not that possible it's a bit of a, it's yeah. so what well, well what i think is this that not every unidentified flying object is from a, an alien planet but where they come from i don't know at this particular period in time because the country doesn't nowhere else on in the world has has no, nowhere's got the technology to do that to to get those airships over over britain over the eastern counties over the time at that time it could be practiced it could i mean people have always developed things in secret remember this is a time of when flight is being developed and there may well have been maybe in the American West and maybe somewhere in Britain, people developing these air, airships and people seeing them in the air for the first time would suddenly think this is an enormous Zepp. And the nearest thing we've got to that are the rigid type Zeppelins we got to see during the First World War. So, Lauren, you're, you're right. It's possible. Anything is possible when when you're in, into this realm. It's it's. It's the most extraordinary occurrence, which which draws me to it. I, I my mind is open for alien life, life on Great Britain. I, I I don't have an answer. It's a mystery, and I I think it's a mystery worth revisiting to see if we can find some answers, or at least to introduce it to a, a new generation and keep it going, so in in the hope that one day there will be uh, something discovered. Yeah, to me, yeah, to me, it seems far more fascinating to think that it would be something terrestrial instead of extraterrestrial. I don't even want to, you know, the alien thing would be the last thing to come to my mind. My mind is who here had this technology and why do we not know about it to this day? Yeah, yeah. All of the above answers from Lauren, from Brian. I know who did it. All these suggestions. I, I, it was Theo, wasn't it? Australians. I think it's absolutely fascinating. But when you when you start studying lights in the sky, and and following that theme, certainly when people become more aware of uh, technology, the chance of there being flight, people are starting to look up more and consider what is that that they are seeing up there. 
it really is absolutely it's fascinating and it's one of those subjects where the more you dig the more you find and now when i began my research into all of this all those years ago in 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 the 1990s of course i i couldn't go online and look at newspapers i had to go to libraries in east anglia and look at newspapers that were on microfilm now with the click of a few buttons, I can start finding these stories that I'd never dreamt of and plotting month by month the progress of scare ships from East Anglia, Norfolk, Suffolk, Essex, and then finding them going on Shoebury Ness and finding them also up on the Tyne. And I just think that's that's and, and over in Wales, they're being seen in Wales too. So what's and the US. On? And they were seen over here in the US. Yeah. See, speaking of that, next time we gather, we're gonna have Kurt on and we're gonna do a US strange aerial phenomenon topic. What do you think of that? I would love it. I'd love it. I want to get to the bottom of not just the US, but maybe going a little bit wider as well. Thinking about things like the NASCAR lines. And why why who why were they created? Was that to be seen from above? I'd love to explore that some more as well. Oh, I love these chats. These the, the, this stuff makes me happy. Because as much of a skeptic as I am, all people who are interested in finding answers should be skeptics. Yeah. That's what I find, and because that's why you keep searching and you keep looking and you keep trying to find answers. What I've always thought is, if you think of the wonders, the wonders that we think we imagine, and we we think of the greatest wonders and the mysteries of the world, and you think, what's the one of the greatest wonders? Well, it's heaven. And you look, where do you, where's heaven? It's you look above and you look at angels and they're above and you think of God or gods and you look above. It's always from above. Well, not necessarily because I think the greatest wonder in the world is stuffed crust pizza. (laughs) (laughs) You got to have some faith, Brian. How do they have faith inside the crust like that? And it's perfect. That's the great one. I thought thought Duff Wings was. Oh, Duff's Wings, that mystery's been solved. I've done enough research eating those to figure it out. But, oh, stuffed crust pizza. I'm a food guy. <laughs> I, think but, um, I, could beat, I think I can beat that as well. There's, um, I don't, you don't, there's not so many of them now, but um, in London, there, um, there is this restaurant called the Japanese Canteen, and that food is lovely. The noodles there is the best. Beat stuffed pizza, stuffed crust pizza, hands down. Hands down. <laughs> not even gonna, I'm not even going to dignify that. That's because you uh, hate London. And you hate London food, Brian. <laughs> I love London. I just hate their food. <laughs> That's because Ryan, I, I can't agree with you there. I, I, I love oh, your brother, no. but my God, man, that some of the, oh, some of the food there. In fact, let's face it, some of the best things in this, I mean, we are surrounded by wonders. And we won't get into the, the God and heaven equation with food but if we want to talk food 
oh yes that's also a wonder of the world <laughs> that i truly enjoy good food uh if, if anybody is uh yeah if you like chicken i i've recently discovered uh, pak choy with sesame chicken oh know. delicious hey come on that's nice if you don't if you don't you know eat meat it's fine you can do the sauce do everything else with the in fact pak choy Pak Choi, I mean, that is truly a gift from wonderful places, is it not? The, I mean, how can a vegetable taste that good? No vegetable tasted that good when I was a kid. No. <laughs> I'd, like, no. I'd like to complain, though, about American food infiltrating the UK, because in Cardiff now, we have a Popeyes. <sighs> well, OK, I'm not going to bash Popeyes because they're OK and all, but don't don't. Don't don't think of Popeyes as American. That's like when people say we eat American food here. We go to McDonald's. That's not American food. Timmy's. Timmy's is the best. That's Canadian. You have a Timmy's and you're in America. Yes, but it's a Canadian company. Yeah, that's why it's good then. Timmy's is good. I have no idea what a Timmy's is, but important. It's a coffee shop. Let's face it. One of the greatest gifts of the world came from the Colonel. Come on. You know. Colonel Sanders is better than Popeyes. Hey, come yeah. on. One of the great mysteries of the world is how powerful Neil is going to be with his new hip. Hey, <laughs> getting closer to the counter, lifting that bargain bucket. Yes, the championship. And he can move again. Yeah. That's, that's his favorite meal after a hard night in the White Heart, is it, is it, is it Colonel Sanders? Because it's right next door. It depends what the uh, yes, it depends what company I'm in, but <laughs> I could be led astray. <laughs> no, no, no. From what I can remember, it's been a few years, but I remember that in that group, some of the conversations I overheard, you were the leading, you were the leader of of that. You were leading them astray. Well, you, okay, you got me. Uh, I'm partial after a few beers. Kebabs are one thing, and I do like a kebab, but I've got to say, you know, the Colonel's an easy walking distance, and it's finger-licking good. You know, we had mentioned the great Martin Fido earlier, and one of the best meals I've ever had was uh, Martin Fido, Janice Wilson, myself, Michael Hawley, all went for Ethiopian food in Baltimore one night. Oh, it was so good. Oh, what a dream team. What a dream team. God, I'd love yeah. being there on that night. But I hope that there was some there was some, some nice wine with that. Oh, there was. And actually, the, the next night, um, Christopher George joined us as well at the bar. Oh, So you had Martin Fido, Mike Hawley, Janice Wilson, Chris George, myself closing a bar. Oh. That is an interesting time. Now, that has to happen one day. I, I all of this this big pond in between us we must gather it's it's long overdue and it needs to happen once you can travel again and go through uh, metal detectors yeah not not past magnets <laughs> <laughs> we we'll take you all over for uh duff's wings and stuffed crust pizza oh, heaven on earth heaven on earth friends I know we're going way over time here, so I'm going to wrap this up quick because you're coming back, I would say, within a couple weeks to do a show with Fearless Foursome. 
That would be lovely. I, I'd like it, that. It's very debatable much. whether I'll be there, though. I, I might decide to have a uh, have a night off. Lauren, <laughs> it would not be the same without you. I'd be fine. I'd be fine. Oh, I miss your pine. No, come on. <laughs> yeah, we didn't even, you know, we didn't even get to talk about Tom Jones this time. Hey, that's not unusual. <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to say that. Don't my joke. Well, I'm not meeting up with you if you decide to both travel to London anymore. I I think you would. I'm up for London anytime. I wish I were up for London anytime if I could pack my own lunch. Fucking food there sucks. You (laughs) bought a hot dog from a van, from a Piccadilly Whip van. You got what you deserved. Well, yeah, I gotta be good. fair. I gotta be fair. Most of the other food I had in England was edible. Brian, we need we need to take you somewhere decent. Tomahawk steakhouse should sort you out. Yeah, yeah, everything was edible except that hot dog and that sort. You know, and and you have damned English cuisine ever since. Yes, the one goddamn well, hot dog. Yeah, I did. I'm well, that to going to London by myself now. I don't. <laughs> That and the what what they claimed was pizza that was made in the in the pub that place that that was bad too. But oh, but you've never had pork scratchings, have you, Brian? What's that? Pork scratchings, or even a pig's ear. Mm. Yeah, we have those here. That's crunchy and nutritious. I don't know if it will be still there now, but it, last time I went to London, the, uh, there was a van. It was a Greek pizza, and they had a van with a proper pizza oven in it, and that pizza was nice. The word van, uh, that, that doesn't sort of, I don't know. It was know. in I'm, I'm City a... Market. It had, it, had a five, it had a five rating on the food hygiene scale. Food trucks are big in the United States now. I didn't die. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little frightened by them too, but they're huge here. <laughs> food trucks. I might give it a whirl. Ugh. But speaking of giving it a whirl, what do you got to pitch for us? I know you got a million and one projects. Some you can talk about, some you can't talk about, but uh, you got anything you want to pitch? A new project? Uh, well, uh, to all pitch is my new book, which, which has just come out. It, it's called Nazi Spies and Collaborators in Britain, 1939 to 1945. It names names on the blacklist, those that were judged by the regional security panels to be unreliable in the event of an invasion of Great Britain. It's, and it also includes spies that were landed by parachute and rubber boat, infiltrator spies, some that just came under the guise of businessmen and always stayed one step ahead of MI5. It's quite a story. And among the collaborators, there's a former head of British Royal Naval Intelligence. There's a major general and all sorts of people, both of German origin, British. It's uh, quite an eye opener, if you like. And is that available? Is that available on Amazon? And yeah, all good bookshops on Amazon. And if you wait a little while, it will be circulated in America, and you won't have to play loony uh, 
postage rates on it either. And it will come out on in Kindle, I expect, in the next six months. And my mother would like to know, is it going to come out in audiobook format so she can hear Neil Story read the book? I, I, I don't know. But uh, believe you me, Brian, if she really wants to hear it, I'll read her a couple of chapters poisonously. Uh, you know, she's going to hear this and she's going to hold you to that. I just want you to know. I, I would sit here and read it, drink tea uh, and, and have a giggle with your lovely mum. As she has said many times, bring Neil's story on your show again. I don't care what the topic is. I will listen to Neil's story, read the phone oh. book for five hours. Oh. <laughs> That's what she well, I, I'd read her a couple of decent chapters from a Nazi spies and collaborators. And she, I think she'd enjoy Anyway, look, send her my love, Brian. Lauren, it's lovely to see you, darling. Take care. Love to all your family. Keep strong, love. And Brian, you rascal. It's always good to see you, my friend. Hey, I do my best. And, you, you know, you're not going to hide too long because in a couple of weeks you're going to be back out with Kurt. Fearless Force oh. will be back. He misses you terrible. He couldn't be on tonight, but he wanted to send, obviously have me send you his love and get well wishes. Thank you so, so much. And, and thank you again to everybody who's been so kind. I'm sorry I'm not quite on full pelt yet because I, I'm on certain medication that kills the pain and makes me a little drowsy. So for tonight, my darlings, I will bid you a fond farewell, a good night. And say, may your gods go with you, my darlings. Good night. Brian in Buffalo. And Lauren in Swansea. Good night. Night. Because he did pull on our floor.